0: Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma.
1: Keep working, Al.
0: Okay, Sam, I will, I will. That guy pushing me around is George Matthews in his role of Sam Dunleavy, both the hero and the villain of tonight's episode. He leads a small troupe of lesser-known but interesting actors who all do a terrific job here. But perhaps the most interesting person Involved in this episode is the short story writer. Now look, Al. All right, all right. Sam's getting impatient, so I think we better jump right into this episode. Here's Hitch.
2: This is a mouse trap, as any fool can plainly see. That is, if he isn't a mouse, it's amazingly effective, too. I've been fiddling with it only a few minutes and have already caught three.
0: He raises his hand to show three bandaged fingers.
2: Cornel Woolrich, the author of tonight's story, does not make mouse traps. Mr. Woolrich goes in for bigger game. He makes people traps, and very good ones too. This story concerns a perfect alibi. Actually, one never knows when he will need an alibi. Recently, I read of an innocent man who found himself in serious difficulty because although he claimed he had been watching a movie while the crime in question was being committed, his vagueness about details of the picture caused police to be suspicious. Please do not allow this to happen to you. Watch and listen closely to the following commercial, which is furnished for your benefit. It will provide you with an airtight alibi as to your whereabouts during the next 60
0: seconds. So here's The Big Switch, starring George Matthews and Beverly Michaels, a teleplay by Richard Carr, based on a story by Cornell Woolrich, and directed by Don Weiss. So after our usual ominous title card music, we get this jaunty, upbeat, sort of humorous music. This music accompanies a street scene showing a trolley car, early automobiles, pedestrians in hats, and a cop directing traffic. Words get superimposed over this street scene that say Chicago, 1920. We were just in San Francisco in 1909 in our last episode. But then it further goes on to say, in the days of bullets, bootleggers, and beautiful babes. As Jack Seabrook puts it at Bare Bones E-zine, from these title cards, we know that this episode will be tongue-in-cheek. And it mostly is, but it has this undercurrent of menace and murder that makes that humor a little bit unsettling. That scene crossfades... To a bird in a cage as the music transitions into a parakeet singing and a hungry cat meowing. We then end up with a long, fluid camera shot as we move from the bird in the cage to the cat sitting on the back of a chair to Sam Dunleavy entering the room, there's a knock at the door Sam goes over to answer the door. It's his old friend, Lieutenant Al Ward, I believe, if I understand him correctly, from the police department. The camera follows Al and then Sam back into the center of the room before we get our first cut. Now, seeing as we're dealing with Chicago gangsters of the 1920s, it's a nice image to start with a bird in a cage, hunted by a cat watching its every move. Sort of a short, succinct reference to prison and rivalries and rubouts. Unfortunately, Sam's subsequent dialogue, while humorous, strips the scene of any subtlety and stomps the symbolism into submission.
1: Shulks! Ah, don't give me that innocent look. I know what you had in mind. You was thinking of knocking Edgar off there, wasn't you? Ah, well, Edgar's our buddy, and we don't pull no capers off on our buddy.
0: This is the same thing that Sam tries to tell Al at the end of the episode, that he wouldn't kill his friends, but more on that later.
1: Now, Edgar's got to toughen up and stuff without you keeping a stake out on him. Morning, Edgar. Ah, come on now, come on, come to the warden. Come on, boy. Yeah?
3: Open up, Don Levy. It's Ward.
0: That's Ward, right? He says Ward. I do like the way Sam talks to his pets as if they're people. We'll find out very shortly that he also has a name for an inanimate object. And we'll find out later that he's not the only one that does this. Sam lets Al in, and we discover that they've known each other for a very long time. Hiya,
3: Sam. Oh, pretty good. Hey, nice place. This a
1: personal call or a business
3: call? Oh, a little of each. You living here alone? Nah, share the place with the WCTU. <laughs> Always with a gag, huh?
0: The WCTU was the Women's Christian Temperance Union, an organization which strongly supported the 18th Amendment. Remember the words superimposed on the opening shot? in the days of bullets, bootleggers, and beautiful babes. We're in the beginnings of prohibition.
3: I remember back in grade school, it was the same thing. Even when old lady Turner took the switch to you, you always had a gag. You come to take the switch to me? I'd like to take the switch to you. That is, if it would help me beat some sense into that thick skull, Sam. Guess it's a little late for that though. The only switch big enough for you now is the one that throws the juice into the chair.
0: So this really is a friendly visit on Al's part, not an official visit. He knows that Sam is a killer, but Sam is an old friend. He warns him that he's gonna end up in the chair if he continues in his ways, and then he comes to the point.
3: I came to ask you to leave Chicago. Leave? I just got back. Yeah, I know. You just got back from Miami, where, strangely enough, they had two funerals last week, Legs Long and Bugsy Thomas.
0: All right, so we're talking about murders, we're talking about funerals, but really, Legs Long and Bugsy Thomas? This is sort of the cartoon version of Chicago Gangland, isn't it? Yeah, I seen them. A lot
3: of nice flowers. Look, Sam, it's not up to me to pin those Miami jobs on you. There's a lot of old ones pulled by you right here for me to work on.
0: So far, it's a fairly friendly encounter. They may be on opposite sides of the law, but they're joking with each other a little bit. Al is trying to get Sam on the straight and narrow. Sam serves him coffee. But now, as Al wonders why Sam has returned to Chicago, he comes upon a framed photograph.
3: Hey, real pretty girl, Sam. To Sam with all my love, Goldie. Yes, sir. Real pretty
0: girl. Actually, it's not a particularly attractive picture of Goldie. We'll find out later that she's more attractive than this. Here, her mouth is open. Her head is tilted back in this sort of defiant pose. Her hands are on her hips. It all looks rather awkward, as if the photographer caught her at just the wrong moment. I don't know if that's supposed to be part of the humor or not. But regardless, Al has hit a nerve. Something's going on with Sam and Goldie, and he doesn't want to talk about it. Give me
3: that. Ah. Oh. Touchy, huh? Maybe you don't go for this with all my love routine. Maybe things aren't like that anymore, huh?
1: Get to the point and then get out.
3: OK, I will. Word has it that this Goldie dame threw you over for a guy named Morgan. Talk is she's been running around with this, Morgan, ever since you left for Miami and that you're plenty burned up. There's also talk that you came back here to take
1: care of things, right? You'd think I'd risk my neck for some babe. Goldie me are finished, all right, but I called it quits, not her. Nobody runs out on me. And lives. Take care, Sam.
0: Before leaving though, Al offers Sam one more bit of advice.
3: Oh, uh, Sam, you got a gun? You got a badge? Just think twice before you use it. I
1: always do. Once when I load it and once when I fire it.
0: You got to admit that is a good line. So Al leaves. Sam now has the picture of Goldie in his hands and he throws it at the door perhaps symbolic of what he plans to do to the real Goldie. Sam goes back to the birdcage, and there's a little drawer in the bottom of it. He opens it, pulls out a small revolver. Ah, now, don't be scared
1: of Susie here. Susie ain't gonna hurt you. Don't you be scared neither, Schultz. Susie ain't gonna hurt you.
0: That's the end for Edgar and Schultz in this episode, but it isn't the end for Susie. It's later in the day and Sam has shown up at a speakeasy. He knocks on the door and gives the password.
1: Manasseh Mauler.
0: Manasseh Mauler was a nickname for Jack Dempsey, who was heavyweight champion from 1919 to 1926. Dempsey was from Manasseh, Colorado. The guy at the door lets Sam in, and the camera follows Sam along the bar to his seat at the bar, where he greets the bartender.
1: Hello, Ed. Sam, Sam Donnelly. Hey, when'd you get in town? The last I heard, you were in Miami. Got back in town yesterday morning. Bonnie around? Yeah, he's in the back room. I'll ring for him. No, no. In a game or alone? He's alone. Then I'll go back and surprise him. See you later, Ed. All right.
0: Ed is played by James Edwards, who we've seen once before. He was the African American convict in Breakdown, the only one who seemed to express any sympathy for Kalu the only one that seemed to wonder whether he was alive or dead.
4: Look at that poor fella. That wheel really got him jammed in, huh? Yeah, broke his neck, too. Hey, you reckon he's still
1: alive? If we had a mirror, we could tell.
0: This is his last episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Sam goes through some curtains into the back area of the speakeasy, and he enters a room, which is Barney's office. Barney is sitting there, cleaning a gun his back to the door we get this strange sort of full range shot that even includes a ceiling beam running across the top of the frame without turning around barney says shut the
5: door behind you if you come to rob me might as well make it private like oh i forgot about those eyes you got in the back of your head barney say hi, barney well I might have known it was you. The help of got orders to knock, and no punk could be sap enough to come back here and stick me up. <laughs> When'd you get back in town? Yesterday. Well, good to see you, Sam. Come on, sit down.
0: Barney has stood up to greet Sam, and there is a distinct difference in their heights. Now Barney is played by George E. Stone, and George E. Stone was five foot three inches tall. George Matthews was either six foot one and a half or six foot five. I've seen both heights listed for him. When he's in scenes with people like Al, he appears that he's probably six foot one and a half. But when he's with Barney, he sure looks like he's six foot five. The two men take a seat at a poker table, and Sam gets to the reason for his visit.
1: You must be making a lot of dough out of this place. So-so. That's your only source of income these days? What do you mean? Oh, nothing much. Only I used to know a guy could be a real pal in a jam. This guy was great for a cover-up. Once alibied me out of a tight spot. Of course, I paid him plenty.
5: Yeah, but then you had a lot of scratch, Sam. You got a lot of scratch now? I got enough. Well, then stop beating around the bush. You know that I'm good for an alibi if the price is right. Now, come on, make me an offer. Five bills. What? <laughs> Six. You can go higher than that, Sam. $7.50. Uh-uh.
1: A grand. Higher. Now, I see why you're cleaning that gun, Bonnie.
5: You're a robber. I don't need a gun, Sam. I just play with them and pass time away. It's a good hobby, Sam.
1: All right, all right. Save the small talk for later. Let's get back to
5: the point. Look, you're rolling the dice, you make the point. Now, the last number was a 1,000. It's too low. Just how much do you want? Well, now, that depends. Now, tell me, you're planning a rub out? Oh, never mind. Of course you are. That's why you come to me. Now, you know that I can fix you up with a perfect alibi. No slip ups, no nothing. And you can be sure you won't burn. Is that right, Sam? Right. My price is $2,500. What? Sit down, Sam. Sit down.
0: I like the way Sam stands up indignantly twice in this scene. The first time when he says,
1: Now I see why you're cleaning that gun, Bonnie. You're a robber.
0: In each case, he's in close up. When he stands, the camera stands with him when he sits the camera sits with him so we get indignant when he gets indignant we get calmed down when he gets calmed down it's a nice touch
1: well bonnie it's it's dishonest take it or leave it okay that boy only I don't like it when you covered me on that cincinnati job you only charged me 700
5: yeah that's right i remember and you know something? I should have charged you three times as much. Why, they had me down at station over a hundred times, grilling me day and night. But I didn't crack, did I? And you didn't burn, did you? Okay, okay, I'll shut up before you raise the price again. Now
1: put those guns away and let's get down to business. All right.
0: These two actors work really well together, don't they? Part of that might be because they were working together just about a year before doing this episode. Playing cards yet. We'll get to that a little bit later. And you got to love the way the gun cleaning has been incorporated into this so that it seems perfectly natural, and it doesn't seem like it's a plot point. But it is a plot point. So as Barney puts his guns away, the two men start to work out the plan. Sam wants to do the rub-out tonight, and when Barney asks him what time, Sam says,
5: Well, she gets home from work around 10.
0: This is not what Barney is expecting.
5: She? Sam, are you knocking off a dame? Well, don't you worry about the pigeon. You just handle the cover-up. Oh, but Sam, a dame. Well, I guess they got to go like the rest of us. We all got to go
0: sometime. Barney leads Sam out into the hallway. There's a phone booth right opposite his office. It has an out-of-order sign on it. And he gives Sam the pitch.
5: Get this and hang on to it. There's no way in or out of my back room except through the front like he came in. There are no windows, no nothing. Once you're in here, you're in, until everyone out there sees you coming out again. So? So tonight at 9.30, you meet me out in front. Now, we'll set up a little game back here, just you and I. Then you go ahead, take care of your job, and nobody knows a thing about it. You mean I sneak out the front way? How? No, you don't sneak out. You'll be spotted in a minute. But you said there's no other way out. But there is. So far, I'm the only one that knows it. But you're paying me $2,500, and you're going to be the second guy to know it gonna make a call Mm -mm. you are now come on step in now lean up against the back wall but lean harder leads right outside well i'll be now come on get out before somebody sees you come
0: on so the phone booth has a false wall on the back which is actually a door, which leads right out to an alleyway. But how do you get back in? If there's a handle on it on the other side, then somebody would notice, wouldn't they? And they'd walk right in at some point. This is something covered in the short story, just glossed right over here in the episode. All right, so it's later that day. Sam is back at the bar. There's a close-up of him. A hand enters the frame, offering a light for his cigarette. The camera pulls back to reveal Al.
3: Well, go on. Light up.
0: Instead, Sam blows out the flame.
3: Got my own matches, Copper. That's not being friendly. And me, I like friendly people. Why don't you join a Lonely Hearts Club? Maybe you'll meet up with a nice old lady. Maybe, but in my racket, all the nice old ladies I meet usually turn out to
1: be axe murderers. Very funny. Very funny.
0: Sam complains about Al tailing him. And then he gives him his cover story.
1: I came here to play a
3: friendly little game of cards with Bonnie. Well, go right ahead. I'll wait for you here. Then later, I might even walk you home, tuck you in bed. You should have been a nurse. You need a nurse. Here we go. Speeches again. Uh, Uh-uh. From now on, I'm just a cop. I tried talking to you like a friend, but no more. And don't expect any favors.
0: So there it is. Al lays it right out. The friendship is over. But we already knew the friendship was over because we saw Sam symbolically end the friendship by blowing out the flame offered to him by Al. Then Barney enters, and he rags on Al, too.
5: Well, good evening, gentlemen. I hardly recognize you without your rubber hose, Lieutenant. Come on, Barney. Let's get started. That is if Hawkshaw here doesn't mind.
3: Not at all. I'll make myself at home out here. Have fun, boys.
0: So what's with the rubber hose? Well, this is from ForensicOutreach.com. Historically, confessions were a simple matter of applying the so-called third degree, depriving the subject of food, water, and sleep, applying physical discomfort, beating him with a rubber hose so as not to leave marks, and even threats or intimidation eventually broke a subject or caused him to accept whatever story he was being fed, simply to stop the abuse. Now, what's up with Hawkshaw, the IMDb writer who doesn't get the reference? lists Al as Al Hawkshaw, but Hawkshaw isn't Al's last name. It's a reference to Hawkshaw the Detective, a comic strip of the time. It ran from 1913 to 1922 originally, right during the time that this story takes place, and then it was revived from 1931 to 1952, so the original viewers of this program probably recognized the reference. This is from Wikipedia. The name of Gus Magger's character was derived from the common American slang of the time, in which a Hawkshaw meant a detective. That slang itself derived from playwright Tom Taylor's use of the name for the detective in his 1863 stage play, The Ticket of Leave Man. Hawkshaw the detective was based on one of Magger's monk characters, so-called because they looked a lot like monkeys. Sherlocko the Monk, who made his first appearance in 1910. That name was scrapped after Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, threatened legal action over the parodied name. Sherlocko used careful examination of clues and his knowledge of human nature to solve the crimes. Almost invariably, they were done by some other monk characters in the course of his regular activities. Groucho, Forgetto, Henpeco, Nervo. An earlier version of Sherlocko, entitled Knocko the Monk, spawned a lot of nicknames ending in O, which prompted a vaudeville monologist named Art Fisher, while playing poker with four brothers, who performed together, to give them all such names. One of the brothers got a name that belonged to one of the characters in the strip, Groucho, one of the monks. Fisher named the other brothers Harpo, Chico, and Gummo. At various times, however, the different Marx brothers provided different reasons for the names, so Naco the monk may not, in fact, have been the inspiration. So Barney and Sam go back to Barney's office. Barney is nervous about Al hanging out in the bar, but Sam thinks it makes a perfect alibi. It also makes a perfect opportunity to talk about Joseph Downing, who played Al. Joseph began on Broadway, but he's in movies from 1935 to 1957, and he's on television programs from 1949 to 1963. He's in Angels with Dirty Faces, appropriately, Damon Runyon Theater, Car 54, Where Are You?, The Donna Reed Show, and many others. He's in two more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock. The next one is Place of Shadows, episode number 22. And his last credit is an episode of Glynnis, which co-starred George Matthews. Joe Downing died in 1975 at the age of 72. Sam and Barney get back to Barney's office, and Barney says... Sit down, we'll deal us a couple of hands.
5: I ain't got much time. We gotta set it up, don't we? Now sit down. The waiter's gonna come in here with a bottle of hooch and then he's gonna leave. Now he's gonna make a very good witness. He'll swear that we were playing cards back here. Good enough. Now slap down some dough and make it look real good. Just so I get this back... You got a good plan? It's so simple, it's beautiful. When I leave, you keep
1: yelling now and then, so the folks out front will think we're arguing. I just want to be there and ready when she gets home from the club. Club? She's a dancer, works an early show. She comes home for two hours until it's time to go back for the second show. You know this babe's habits pretty well. Yeah. Come in.
5: OK, Bonnie. OK. Put up a shut up? Now, don't rush me, Sam. Oh Tony, see that we're not disturbed for an hour or two. Mr. Don Levy here wants to lose some money.
0: Yes, Mr. Barney. Tony is played by Napoleon Whiting, and his career is filled with the sort of stereotypical roles that African American actors got during the time. He's played a chauffeur, a red cap, a cab driver, a club car porter, a boot black, a waiter, as here, a preacher, and an usher. He's the butler in the film Giant. And he's in 35 episodes of The Big Valley as Silas, the Barclays' servant. Oh, good
5: morning, Silas. Good morning, good morning Mr. Barclay. Morning, Silas. Have you seen Heath? Yes, ma'am. He had something to do down at the corral. He said he'd be right back. Thank you.
0: Imagine a whole career of playing roles like that. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode. and Napoleon Whiting died in 1984 at the age of 74. So back to Tony's entrance.
5: Barney, okay, put up a shut up. Now don't rush me, Sam. Oh, Tony, see that we're not disturbed for an hour or two. Mr. Don Levy here wants to lose some money. Yes, Mr. Barney. I lose too much and I slit your throat.
0: Did you hear it? When Tony comes in, he puts the bottle down. Then he starts to put shot glasses down for each man. But Barney's left arm raises just a little bit, just as Tony is putting the shot glass down. And in order not to hit Barney's arm. He moves his hand, and the shot glass clinks against the bottle, getting that little ringing sound.
1: Yes, Mr. Barney. I lose too much, and I slit
0: your throat. It's one of those little glitches that they either never noticed or decided was too minor for a retake. And I love little glitches like that. So Sam and Barney continue their mock arguing, surprising Tony, and guaranteeing that he's going to get out of there as quickly as possible. And as soon as he leaves the room, they stop dead. And I mean they stop dead.
5: Now, you just keep the game on the square, that's all. Ah, you four-flusher, you got more races up your sleeve than any guy I know. Now, wait a minute, Sam. Don't be a wise guy. If you want to play, it's okay, but button up your lip. Ah, you're doing all the yakking, been yakking ever since I came in here. Nah. Just...
0: And this is around the time that the episode starts to lose me, to some extent. I'm fine with the kind of humor we've had so far. You know, the way Sam gets indignant and says...
1: It's dishonest.
0: When Barney charges too much to alibi him for the murder he's planning to commit. Or when Barney goes from
5: Sam, are you knocking off a dame?
0: to philosophically saying only seconds later
5: Well, I guess they gotta go like the rest of us. We all gotta go sometime.
0: I'm fine with all of that. But now suddenly the humor gets broader. Beginning with, in almost slapstick fashion, the two men stopping their argument the instant Tony leaves the room. If we were supposed to take any of this realistically at all up to this point, we have to stop now. Because clearly, anybody listening out in the bar would notice how phony the end of that argument was. It continues during the time that Barney is alone, where you would think that Al would have to notice that the only person yelling is Barney. And the humor is unfortunately a little overly broad in Sam's confrontation with his intended victim, Goldie. Though it starts very menacing. So as Sam exits out the phone booth, Barney goes over to his cabinet and takes his guns out again. After all, he's got to do something while he's pretending to play cards. The scene shifts to Goldie's empty apartment. There's a close-up of a candlestick phone, and it's ringing. The camera pans up to the windows, with a breeze blowing in, also Sam blowing in. He enters through that window. It's the bedroom. And he looks around a little bit. He finds a letter on a table. Turns the light on, starts to read it. Then he hears Goldie coming into her apartment. Stray so he turns the light off and he hides behind the door. When Goldie enters the bedroom, he's ready for her.
1: Hello, Goldie. Sam! Now that ain't no way to greet an old pal like me, is it, Goldie? Ain't you glad to see me? Sure, Sam. How many? How's Morgan? Morgan. You know, Morgan, the guy you threw me over for. Sam, you don't understand. Ah, what's that understand? A year and a half ago, the heat was on, and I had to take it on the lamb. But I told you I'd be back, and you told me you'd be waiting. Look, Sam. Shut up!
0: So what did I say about the humor getting too broad? This is not very funny here. In fact, this is a very menacing scene, and Beverly Michaels, who plays Goldie, does a wonderful job of exhibiting both fear and pain when Sam grabs her by the arm and then throws her down onto her bed.
1: I gave you everything, sweetheart. Minks, diamonds, or And what do you do? Take up with another guy as soon as I'm gone. I don't like that very much. I aim to show you just how much I don't like it. Sam, listen to me.
6: It just happened.
1: Where's this Morgan guy now? Cleveland. I'm supposed to join him there just as soon as my contract runs out at the club. Your contract's running out right now, sweetheart.
0: He pulls Susie out of his pocket and aims it at Goldie. Now, remember the last time that we had an episode in which a man came to a woman's place in order to murder her? That was episode six, Salvage. Do you remember what happened in that scene? When Gene Barry's character threatens to kill Nancy Gates' character, she says, oh,
6: Dan, Get it over with. Don't make any speeches. Go on. Beg.
3: Get on your knees and beg.
6: I don't mind what's gonna happen.
0: This throws him completely off, and he ends up not killing her, at least not then. Now, with Susie out of his pocket and Sam threatening Goldie, she says...
6: Okay,
1: Sam.
0: And he's as flummoxed as Jean Barry was. Okay.
6: I know better than to argue with you. Only one favor. Could I, could I call and say goodbye to my husband? Husband? Morg's a nice guy. You'd like him. He's been real swell to me.
1: Don't give me no line about how swell a rat is.
6: You want to call him? Okay.
1: Maybe I'd like that. I'd like him to know you was going to get it.
6: Go ahead. Go ahead! Josie, I'd like to call long distance, please. Cleveland. Prospect 17290. Yes.
1: And when you get him, tell him it's going to be slow and painful. Real painful.
6: Here's part of a letter from him. He writes a nice letter.
1: I already seen it.
6: And did you read this part at the bottom of the page, Sam?
1: I didn't read it all.
6: It's real sweet. Things are going smoothly here. And I'm taking good care of baby. Let me say that.
0: Beverly Michaels is really good here. At various times through all of this, her face betrays fear, scheming, a kind of false innocence, and sensuality. Now it helps that when Sam snatches the letter away to look at it, it does actually say, I'm taking care of baby, which is part of the additional broad humor that just doesn't work for me. Because we soon find out That just as Sam has named his gun Susie, Morgan has named his gun Baby. And why he would write, I'm taking care of Baby, in a letter to Goldie, is beyond me. You didn't say nothing to me about no Baby.
6: You were away, Sam. Morg came along. We got married and had the Baby. Hello? Oh, yes, hello, Morg. Morg, tell me. How's the Baby? I hope Baby's all right.
3: Yeah, baby's just fine, Goldie.
0: Now, just in case you're not getting that Baby is the gun, director Don Weiss provides you with a nice close-up of the gun in Morgan's hand, just to make sure. The humor, such as it is, is derived from the fact that Sam thinks they're talking about an actual baby. Goldie then really shoves the knife in by pretending that Baby has a name that Sam will like very much.
6: Look, do me a favor. Give little... Little Don Levy a kiss for me, will you?
1: Don Levy?
6: Yes, please. Give him a kiss goodbye for me. No, I haven't much time to explain right now, Morg. Just give little Don Levy a kiss and and take good care of him. You see, something is going to happen to his mommy. His mommy is...
1: Never mind. Tell him it was all a mistake. Tell him you'll call him later.
6: I got to hang up now, Mog. I'll call you back later.
0: Another really nice facial touch here by Beverly Michaels. Right in that pause between Little and Little Dunleavy.
6: Give Little, Little Don Levy a kiss for me, will you?
0: Her eyes dart over to the right to look at Sam. Then they dash back again, very quickly. She's baiting the hook.
6: You named the kid
0: Dunleavy?
6: He's so sweet, Sam. You should see him.
1: Tell me, uh, little Don
0: Levy, is he, is he big?
6: Big and healthy. Well, what do you know? I want you to meet him someday.
0: I'll bet she does, particularly after what's just happened with her.
6: Even if, well, even if I'm not around to introduce you.
0: God, oh, don't talk like that. You're going to be around.
6: But I thought that you said the two of A
1: mistake, just a mistake. Hey, look, you got enough of the kid? I mean... What can I get him? What's he need? Boxing clubs, roller skates? You need anything? He's just a
6: baby. He has everything he needs.
1: Oh, just the same. I gotta get him something.
0: Have I gushed enough about Beverly Michaels' facial expressions? Here's one more. Sam turns his back on her just briefly, and during that moment, she rolls her eyes in this wonderful expression of relief. Look,
1: tomorrow morning, you and I will go shopping. We'll buy booties, all sorts of stuff.
6: All right. And...
1: Well, about
6: the other eye. It's okay, Sam.
0: Goldie leans in to let Sam kiss her, but now that she's the mother of Dunleavy, he has to treat her like a mother, and he kisses her on the forehead. I'll see you in the morning.
6: In the morning, Sam.
0: Dunleavy? Gee. He leaves through the front door instead of the window, and Goldie breathes a sigh of relief, and then her phone immediately rings. Hello?
3: Hey, Goldie, what gives, you
6: okay? Yeah, I'm okay, Mog. Only I'm packing a bag and leaving town tonight. You and me are gonna get lost for a while.
3: Well, what was this Don Levy bit you were talking about?
6: I'll explain later. It's really pretty funny, Morg. But you and me and Baby are gonna have to lie low for a while. We're going someplace where nobody can find us. Then later on, you and Baby can make me the kind of dough you promised. See
0: you soon, Mark. So Goldie says it's really pretty funny, but I don't find it especially funny. It's just too over the top. Now, before we get past this scene, I'd like to mention that Mark Dana played Morgan. I'm not real fond of his sort of broad performance here, but he doesn't have much to work with. Anyway, Mark Dana mostly was seen in various B-movies. He's in King Richard and the Crusaders, Tarzan goes to India, the baby doll murders, and he has the starring role in The Pharaoh's Curse.
6: You, Faraday.
5: You're a doctor? You can fight
3: known things, but I don't know how to fight the unknown.
0: Really, who does? He's in one other episode, The Perfect Crime, episode number 24. And Mark Dana died in 2015 at the age of 94. By the way, in the scene where Goldie is talking to Morgan the second time, she clearly has fishnet stockings on. I've looked at the earlier scene, and it looks to me like she doesn't have them on then, though maybe they're just hard to see. So I can't tell if this is a continuity glitch or just me being overly picky. In any event, Sam re-enters through the phone booth, as Barney is yelling away, he smiles at Barney's routine. And then something happens.
5: Now you got those, Sam. Now bet it. Or get out of the game. I was playing cards when you were hijacked and pasteurized good for your bottle. Now look, I got me a good hand. You want to see it, you're going to have to pay plenty. Now come on, what'll it be? Yeah. And
1: once more, this is the last time I'll ever play poker with a two-bit... <laughs> Barney! It went off. Oh, you idiot. I'll get your doctor. It's too late. Oh, Barney. Barney.
0: Barney! Yes, Barney has cleaned a loaded gun one time too often. It goes off and it kills him. Lost in all of Barney's rants before that gunshot is a line that I just love. I was playing
5: cards when you were hijacked and pasteurized, good for your bottle.
0: In any event, with the gunshot, Lieutenant Al, Ed, Tony, various patrons of the speakeasy come rushing in
3: hold it right there i'll take that gun sam and no tricks it's all a mistake bonnie here shot himself oh sure don't try to con me sam you were playing poker you most likely blew your top and let bonnie have it we all heard that shot and you were the only one back here you haven't got any alibi this time sam
1: look bonnie here was No. no alibi no alibi <laughs> Six guys I knock off and you can't touch me. And now you hook me for one I didn't do. Come on, Sam. Six guys I knocked off. Barney here was my uh, friend. I wouldn't on, put a I slug into Barney. You can blame all the hey, other that you know,
0: It's a great twist, set up wonderfully by the way Barney messes around with those guns and it makes me forgive all the stuff that I think is too broad and tries too hard to be funny. Okay, let's play the what if this really happened game. Then let's go on to our three main actors. I think if this really happened exactly as laid out, that Sam has a chance to get off. After all, Barney is probably known for cleaning loaded guns. It's Barney's gun. His cleaning equipment is sitting there in front of him. Everyone could testify that they only heard Barney yelling for most of the evening. And Sam could show the false back of the phone booth to show how he snuck out. Furthermore, since he didn't kill Goldie, there's no murder he has to cover up from his sneaking out. He doesn't have to say what he was doing when he snuck out because chances are if he tried to use Goldie and Morgan as a witness, they would not play ball. But even so, I think he could beat this rap. There's only one problem with the whole thing, and that's that in protesting that he didn't kill Barney, he has confessed to Al to these six other murders that he did commit. All right, let's look at George E. Stone. He plays Barney, and he really deserves to be in the opening credits along with George Matthews and Beverly Michaels. In fact, he's got more screen time than Goldie does. Wikipedia says he was born Gershon Lichtenstein in Poland, but IMDb says he was born George Stein. He began in vaudeville and as a Broadway dancer, he got his first big part as the sewer rat in the silent film Seventh Heaven, which came out in 1927. IMDb says as Georgie sounded too childlike, he began building himself as George E. Stone. From there, he was featured in a number of tough guy potboilers, particularly for Warner Brothers. So typed was he as a henchman or thug that he found few films outside the genre. Wikipedia says he was best known as Rico Bandello's right hand man Otero in the gangster classic Little Caesar, along with Edward G. Robinson. His one starring film was the Universal Pictures gangster comedy The Big Brain. In 1933. In 1939, comedy producer Hal Roach hired him for his film The Housekeeper's Daughter. It was a difficult role. Stone had to play a mentally retarded murderer in a sweet, sympathetic manner. Stone went clean-shaven, emphasizing a boyish, innocent look, and played the part so sensitively that Roach often cast him in other films. In 1942, Stone burlesqued Hirohito, in Roach's wartime comedy, The Devil with Hitler. Or perhaps said should be pronounced, The Devil with Hitler. Now, George was actually friends with Damon Runyon, so it's appropriate that he portrayed Society Max in Guys and Dolls and appeared on Damon Runyon Theater. He has some other notable roles. Remember last time when we saw John Qualen as Earl Williams in the film His Girl Friday? Well, His Girl Friday is based on the play and the film, The Front Page. It's essentially the same story, only Hildy Johnson has been changed from a man into a woman. Here's a bit of the scene I played last time with John Qualen as Earl Williams entering the room where Hildy Johnson is.
6: Hello, operator. Hildy Johnson, when will you get me... The- Drop that phone. Never mind. You're not going to tell anybody where I am. That gun
0: down, Earl. And here's the same scene nine years before in the front page with Pat O'Brien as Hildy Johnson and George E. Stone as Earl Williams.
6: After me. With my... Look at that gun! It ain't
5: loaded. I fired all the bullets already. I surrender. I couldn't hang off of the roof any longer. I ain't afraid to die. I was telling the fellow that when he handed me the gun. Waking me up in the middle of the night. Talking to me about things they don't understand. Calling me a Bolshevik. I'm an anarchist. It's got nothing to do with bombs. It's the philosophy that guarantees every man freedom. All those poor people being crushed by the system. And the boys. The boys that were killed in the war. And in the slums. All of those slaves do a crust of bread. I can hear them crying. Shut up a second, will you? Go on, go on, take me back. Hang me! I got my bet.
0: Twenty-seven years after that, George E. Stone and Pat O'Brien shared another scene together. This time in Some Like It Hot, with George playing Toothpick Charlie. All
5: right, Charlie. At the joint? Yes, sir. Who runs it? I already told you. Refresh my memory. Spats Colombo. That's very refreshing. What's the password? I come to Grandma's funeral. Here's your admission card. Thanks, Charlie. Now, if you want a ringside table, just tell them that you're one of the ball pairs. Okay, Charlie. We're all set. When's the kickoff? Look, Chief, I better blow, because if Colombo sees me, it's going to be goodbye, Charlie. Goodbye, Charlie.
0: Now, aside from Little Caesar, George E. Stone is in two other early 1930s films with Edward G. Robinson. Bullets Are Ballots and Five Star Final. He's also in 42nd Street.
7: Anything wrong, Chief?
5: Everything's wrong, Andy. No, you're a great director, Mr. Marsh. (laughs) Maybe
3: I was, but right now I'm a sick man. They told me I was sick when I started, but I started anyway. Andy, I'm going to finish, and I'm going to have a show. Oh, I know what they'll say. They'll like it. They've got to. They say Marsh is a wizard. He turns them out like clockwork. The guy isn't human. He's a machine. Well, I'm not a machine, Andy. And for the first time, I'm counting on someone else. I've got to. I'm counting on you. And tomorrow night, we're going to give them a show.
5: The greatest show Julian Marsh ever put on.
3: What are you doing? Got a date tonight? No. Come on home with me, will you? I'm lunch.
0: Sure. Two different episodes of The Adventures of Superman, where he's the main hood, and has Richard Reeves playing his henchman in both episodes. Here's one.
5: Hello, Big George. Go to hello me. How did it go? What's the matter? Don't you have any confidence in me? Confidence? I got in myself. For you, I got the same question. Now, how did it go? Perfect, Big George. Just perfect.
0: And here's the other one.
5: What are you doing, little Jack? How many times have I told you there ain't no flies this time of the year? Just keeping in practice for the summer, Duke. Summer. By the summer, I'm going to have this town in the palm of my hands. Yeah, provided Buckley wins as mayor tomorrow. He's going to win. Come here, look at this. You see this? I've got every one of these voting places marked off. I'm going to have one of my boys stationed at each one of these joints. And besides that, I hired a couple of thousand Skid Row characters, and they're going to vote just the way I tell them. Yeah, but some of the people in this town like Wilson. You know, the square-headed mayor they got now? So what? Them is all good citizens. And besides that, most of these people, they don't even bother about voting.
0: And he's in the Twilight Zone episode, Once Upon a Time, where he has no dialogue because he's in the silent portion of the episode which stars Buster Keaton. In the 1960s, George was going blind, and he feared he would never work again. But his friend Raymond Burr got him a job on the Perry Mason series as the court reporter. He appears in 44 episodes. This is his only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and George E. Stone died in 1967 at the age of 64 but I'd actually like to leave him on a higher note. Here he is, with George Matthews, again playing cards. They play the two hotshot poker players who go up against Frank Sinatra in the 1954 film The Man with the Golden Arm.
5: Three aces, two pairs, possible straight flush aces. 200. I call it 200 and I raise it to.
3: i I'll have a look for 400 and then the house bumps you 300
1: more. Up to you, aces. I don't know. I, I just don't know. He's got three aces showing. He's got a possible straight flush that a queen's showing. I tell you, he's bluffing. I think he'd bluff me out of a couple tonight. You wouldn't be jerking up to try it again, would you? Bet and find out.
5: Oh, bet, bet. I tell you, he's a bluff artist. Call I call it, and I raise it 500 more. Sammy! I know what I'm doing. I'll have a look, and the house bumps you 500 more. I told you, I told you, he had it. Shut up, will you let me think? It's up to you. What's the rush I want to know? Your bet, two pairs. I heard you, I heard you. What is this? A force joiner? Something a man's got a right to study his hand. Better or fold. Use your head, Sammy. I tell you, he's got it. Don't throw good money at the bad. I know what I'm doing. you
3: have you didn't pay to find out
1: nothing two lousy nines don't let him bluff you out of a full house with a lousy two nines
3: you do that again at this table and you're through
0: i have no clips to play for beverly michaels because she's only in 11 movies and three tv episodes between 1949 and 1956 and apparently gave up acting soon after she started as a fashion model at the age of nine By 16, she worked as a chorus girl at Billy Rose's Diamond Horseshoe. Wikipedia says in 1951, Michaels caught the attention of independent film director and producer Hugh Haas. Haas showcased Michaels in the 1951 film noir Pickup. The movie was a surprise hit, albeit a secondary B feature, and launched Haas's career as a Hollywood director and had a large part in starting the cycle of bad girl movies of the 1950s, which usually starred blonde sex symbols. Their follow-up release, The Girl on the Bridge, 1951, was not a success, however, and Haas dropped Michaels in favor of newcomer Cleo Moore as his regular female star. I haven't seen Beverly Michaels in any other film or television show, but I think she's terrific here, so it's a shame... That we can't see more of her. Beverly Michaels died in 2007 at the age of 78. George Matthews began his career in the WPA theater. That's the Works Progress Administration, later known as the Works Projects Administration, which was created by President Roosevelt during the Depression. This is from History.com. President Franklin D. Roosevelt created the WPA with an executive order on May 6, 1935. It was part of his New Deal plan to lift the country out of the Great Depression by reforming the financial system and restoring the economy to pre-Depression levels. The unemployment rate in 1935 was at a staggering 20%. The WPA was designed to provide relief for the unemployed by providing jobs and income for millions of Americans, At his height in late 1938, more than 3.3 million Americans worked for the WPA. They built more than 4,000 new school buildings, erected 130 new hospitals, laid roughly 9,000 miles of storm drains and sanitary sewer lines, built 29,000 new bridges, constructed 150 new airfields, paved or repaired 280,000 miles of roads, and planted 24 million trees. And they had a theater of which George Matthews was a member after failing to get a job at the post office. He started in movies in 1943 and TV in 1949. He played heavies for the most part, but sometimes comic heavies. He's in Pat and Mike. How do you do, gentlemen? How'd you do? Pleased to meet you, likewise. Uh, uh, Wouldn't you
6: like to sit down? Yeah,
1: sit down, sit down. Then you
6: can all find a chance. Here, why don't you sit
1: over
5: there? Ah, uh, oh, thanks, Bobby. Thank
1: you, boy. <clears throat> Let's everybody have a drink. On me. Oh, I never allow no alcoholic beverages around the lady here. Who said alcoholic? I mean, you know, like beer or something like that. Even beer.
0: Naked City, Perry Mason, Gunsmoke, The Untouchables, Have Gun, Will Travel, Car 54, Where Are You, Route 66, and even Dark Shadows.
4: All right. I'll come right to the point. I'm going to buy the Logan Sport Fishing Enterprises. My bid is in.
1: Congratulations, Burke. But you didn't ask us up here just to tell us that, did you?
4: No. I asked you up here to make you an offer, a
1: very generous offer. Hold it a minute, Burke. We better get something straight before you go ahead. I'm going to tell you. Now, just a minute. Let me finish. Hear me out.
0: No, sorry, Burke. I'm not going to let you finish. As we already heard, he was in The Man with the Golden Arm, along with George E. Stone. And as I mentioned previously, he co-starred in the short-lived situation comedy "Glinnis," starring Glinnis Johns, of which I can find nothing except a little bit of the theme music. But apparently his role was that of Chick Rogers, a retired police officer who, according to Wikipedia, offers advice and solace to Glynnis in her writing. The Pie Lady points out that George Matthews starred as a guardian angel in the public service short, X Marks the Spot, in which he defends possibly the worst driver in the world, and that that short was later savaged by Mystery Science Theater 3000, in which Joel and the bots, treat George very badly, particularly making fun of his craggy face.
1: Why, if it wasn't for me, Your Honor, he'd have been here years ago. A worst driver in New Jersey, and you expect me to keep my, my trouble. My records
3: show no convictions against this oh, man. He might go free. Yeah, so he right,
5: did a favor for I Sinatra once.
3: I've been driving for 15
5: years. Now, oh, so silence. Know.
3: This court isn't interested in your opinion. Oh. Proceed.
1: Don't you see, Your Honor, that record of no convictions only proves how well I've guided him.
4: You see, it I stopped a, a cow with my luck.
0: face once.
4: My forehead's all Bondo.
0: And he suffers this indignity from Tom Servo. And George Matthews as the do, beaver. do that every movie. Well, oh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's neat. It's, it's in the contract. It's credits. You gotta be. But according to Wikipedia, George is best remembered as Harvey, the pool hall bully in the Honeymooners episode, The Bensonhurst Bomber.
6: Uh, Said he was gonna twist me and you into
1: bookends. Oh, he did, huh? So you're gonna twist me and him into bookends? That's right, that's right. He's gonna twist you and him into bookends. You got nothing to worry about, Ralph. You're in the right. Nobody can push you around. Why don't you shut up? That's not
6: all he said. He made
1: fun of your name. He said Harvey was a funny name. Oh, he did, huh? Harvey's a lovely name. So Harvey's a funny name. You're a real wise guy, huh? I don't like wise guys. You know what I might do to you? I might punch you right in the mouth.
3: Wait right, now, wait, wait, wow. wait, wait, just a minute. You can't talk to us that way. You
1: keep out of this. <laughs> yeah, stay what out What are of you it. yelling at me for? I wasn't the one that said I'd twist you into a pretzel. He did. <laughs> oh, <shut up. laughs> oh, so you're gonna twist me into a pretzel,
5: huh? <laughs> I don't even like pretzels, but what?
1: You hear that, George? He's gonna twist me into a pretzel. All right, wise guy, I'll give you a chance. Come on, step outside. Well, Ralph, I'll hold your coat. Why don't you shut up?
0: IMDB says, in private life, Matthews was the antithesis of the ruffians he often portrayed on screen. Amicable and intelligent. Outside of his profession, he was an avid chess player and often participated in international tournaments. He retired from acting in 1972, and he died in South Carolina in November 1984, at the age of 73. He is in one other Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode, Toby, episode six of season two. We talked about director Don Weiss in episode 12, Santa Claus and the 10th Avenue Kid, which he directed. I think at the time I said it was fairly pedestrian directing. I feel sort of the same here too. There are some nice moments, But then there's moments like showing the close-up of the gun when Morgan talks about Baby that just seem obvious to me. He had a long career in television, so, hey, good for him. And he does have three more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but the next one is not until Season 6, Episode 29, The Pearl Necklace. This is the last Alfred Hitchcock Presents teleplay for Richard Carr. He did two prior to this. Triggers and Leash, and Salvage. But this is the first time that Cornell Woolridge pops up. He was born Cornell George Hopley Woolridge. He has a number of associations with Alfred Hitchcock. There are two more Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode based on his stories. The next is Momentum, episode 39, which is the last episode of season one. He also wrote the story Three O'Clock, the basis for the Suspicion episode Four O'Clock, which Hitchcock directed. Several of his stories have appeared in Alfred Hitchcock anthologies, and he wrote the story originally called It Had to Be Murder, on which Rear Window is based. This is from the introduction to a book entitled Rear Window and Four Short Novels, the introduction by Francis M. Nevins was also the author of the book, Cornell Woolrich, First You Dream, Then You Die. Woolrich was born on December 4, 1903, to parents whose marriage collapsed in his youth. Much of his childhood was spent in Mexico with his father, a civil engineer. When he was eight, the experience of seeing a traveling French company perform Puccini's Madame Butterfly in Mexico City gave Ulrich a sudden, sharp insight into color and drama and his first sense of tragedy. Three years later, he understood fully that someday, like Xiao Xiao San, he too would have to die, and from then on he was haunted by a sense of doom that never left him. During adolescence, he lived with his mother and maternal relatives in New York City, and in 1921, he entered Columbia College, where he began writing fiction. He then quit school in his junior year to pursue his dream of becoming another F. Scott Fitzgerald. His first novel, Cover Charge, 1926, chronicled the lives and loves of the Jazz Age's gilded youth in the manner of his and his whole generation's literary idol, this book was followed by the prize-winning Children of the Ritz, 1927, whose success propelled Woolrich to Hollywood as a screenwriter, a job at which he failed and into a brief marriage at which he failed even worse. Before long, he fled back to New York and his mother, For the next quarter century, he lived with her in residential hotels, going out only when it was absolutely essential, trapped in a bizarre love-hate relationship that dominated his external world, just as the inner world of his later fiction reflects in his tortured patterns the strangler grip in which his mother and his own inability to love a woman held him. From 1934 until his death in 1968, this tormented recluse all but created what we know as noir, writing dozens of haunting tales of suspense, despair, and lost love, set in a universe controlled by diabolical powers. During the 30s, his work appeared only in pulp magazines like Black Mask and Detective Fiction Weekly. Then, beginning with The Bride War Black, 1940, he launched his so-called Black series of suspense novels, which appeared in France as part of the Série Noire and led the French to acclaim him as a master of bleak poetic vision. Much of his reputation still rests on those novels and on the other suspense classics originally published under his pseudonyms William Irish and George Hopley. But despite overwhelming financial and critical success, his life remained a wretched mess, and when his mother died in 1957, he cracked. From then until his own death 11 years later, he lived alone, his last year spent in a wheelchair after the amputation of a gangrenous leg racked by diabetes and alcoholism and homosexual self-contempt. But the best of his final tales of love and despair are still gifted with the magic touch that chills our hearts, and in a title for a story he never wrote, he captured the essence of his world and the world of noir in six words. First you dream, then you die. IMDB adds that he bequeathed money to Columbia University to set up a creative writing course, which was named not after him, but after his mother, and that he was such a loner that he rarely put dedications on his novels. He dedicated The Bride War Black to his Remington portable typewriter. They also note that when he died in 1968 at the age of 64, his funeral went unattended. In the article, Writing in the Darkness, The World of Cornell Woolrich, Eddie Dugan notes, Although Woolridge had published six Jazz Age novels concerned with the party antics and romances of the beautiful young things on the fringes of American society between 1926 and 1932, he was unable to establish himself as a serious writer. Perhaps because the Jazz Age novel was dead in the water by the 1930s when the Depression had begun to take hold, Woolrich was unable to find a publisher for his seventh novel, I Love You Paris, so he literally threw away the typescript, dumped it in a dustbin, and reinvented himself as a pulp writer. He notes that Francois Truffaut's two films from the 1960s, The Bride Wore Black and Mississippi Mermaid, are based on Woolrich's stories. And he says that, although his writing made him wealthy, Woolrich and his mother lived in a series of seedy hotel rooms, including the squalid Hotel Marseille apartment building in Harlem, among a group of thieves, prostitutes, and lowlifes that would not be out of place in Woolrich's dark fictional world. Woolrich lived there until his mother's death, which prompted his move to the Hotel Franconia on West 72nd Street. He later moved to the Sheridan Russell on Park Avenue, but he was still a virtual recluse. After his leg was amputated, he converted to Catholicism, and he returned to the Sheridan Russell confined to a wheelchair. Some of the staff there would take Woolrich down to the lobby so he could look out on the passing traffic, thus making the wizened, wheelchair-bound Woolrich into a kind of darker, self-loathing version of the character played by James Stewart in Hitchcock's rear window. Now, Woolrich had a foot infection in his youth, and Dugan notes... The Woolrich story turns full circle around the Oedipally charged foot motif. The writing career that apparently began with a period of confinement attributed to a foot infection ends with an amputation and the deep Freudian resonance that amputation induces. Eddie Dugan also notes that when Cornell Woolrich died, he weighed 89 pounds. Now, we really can't go into all of that without talking about rear window, and we will. But first, let's talk about the story that is the basis for the big switch. It's called Change of Murder, and it begins like this. Brains Dunleavy, early one Chicago evening, set out to call upon his friend Fade Williams. He was dressed for the occasion in a dark blue hourglass overcoat, eyebrow-level derby, and armpit-cuddling 38. It being a windy evening, he would have caught cold without any one of the three, particularly the last. He and Fade had known each other for years. They had so much on each other, they were of necessity the best of friends. The 38, therefore, was just habit and not precaution. Fade, to be accurate, was not the given name of the gent. Although he had been known to vanish, disappear into thin air for long stretches at a time, his nickname didn't derive from that trait either. It was borrowed from a game of chance, the lowly pastime of shooting craps, in which the expression Fade means one player is willing to match the other's stake put up an equal amount. In other words, back the hazard. Not that Fade ever played craps. There were bigger and better ways of earning money. He was a semi-professional alibi doctor, a backstop, a setup arranger. Although good stiff fees figured in his adroit juggling of times, places, and circumstances, his amateur standing must be granted. He wasn't listed in the telephone red book, and he had no shingle out advertising his services. He had to know you, You couldn't just walk in off the street, plank down a retainer, and walk out with an alibi all neatly done up in brown paper. A too frequent appearance in the witness chair, helping to clear persons mistakenly accused of committing crime, might have caused justice to squint suspiciously at Fade after a while. But Fade's batting average was consistently good. That arranging a deal with him was almost like buying immunity at the outset, which was why Brains Dunleavy was on his way to him right then, having a murder in mind. Now, having set that all up, one of the next things that Woolrich sets up is Dunleavy's sentimentality, something that isn't really set up in the episode. Woolrich writes, Yet relentless as he could be about wiping out old scores, there was also a wide streak of sentimentality in his makeup. Mother McCree could bring tears to his eyes if his beer had been needled enough. He had been known to pitch rocks through butcher shop windows in the dead of night simply to release the imprisoned kittens locked behind them. I kiss the dear
1: fingers, so toil born for me. Oh, God
0: bless you and keep you, As in the episode, Woolbridge sets up the gun cleaning, saying, like to fiddle around with them, keep them clean, explained Fade. Helps me pass the time away, sitting in here by the hour like I do. I've got quite a few hanging around. Sometimes they take them out and look them over. Makes me think of the old days. He later has Brains Dunleavy tell Fade, Watch yourself. You reloaded that thing. One of these days you're going to blow your own head off monkeying around that way. Now Brains sets up the alibi thing with Fade, but in this case his intended victim is a man, Goldie's boyfriend, or perhaps husband, who goes by Hitch because his last name is Hitchcock. Now, maybe that's what Drew, the producers of Alfred Hitchcock, presents to the story. But once you do the story, you can't call the character Hitchcock. So he becomes Morgan. The story proceeds along pretty much the same way it does when Sam goes to see Goldie. One slight difference is in reference to Baby, which I think works much better here in the story, because Goldie has written to Hitch and has said, I am taking good care of your baby for you. I think of you every time I look at it. Compare that with...
6: And I'm taking good care of
0: baby. Which seems like an odd thing for Morgan to write when it's his own gun. But in the story, if Hitch has left his gun with Goldie, then the line makes more sense. In fact, after Brains spares Hitch's life, we learn that the letter continues on the other side of the page. And it says, And I'm sure glad you left it with me. Never can tell what might turn up while you're gone. There's nothing like having a 32 around when a gal is by herself. Don't forget to pick up another in chai for yourself in case you run across you-know-who. Note also that the letter says, I think of you every time I look at it. But Brains doesn't pick up on this, and that's because he's a sentimentalist. Even as he's reading the letter, and even as Hitch tells him that they've named the baby Dunleavy Hitchcock, there's a radio playing in the background just a song at twilight and that has a profound effect on him too The rest of the story is essentially the same. It's a little more graphic. Then he saw the gun in Fade's lap where it had dropped and the tag end of the haze was still lazily coming from it. The chamois rag was down below on the floor. He knew the answer even before he'd picked up the gun, tilted Fade's face, and looked at it. Fade had cleaned one of those guns of his once too often. When his head came up, he only had one eye. It had gone right through the other. And the story ends as the episode does with Brains calling out, six guys I killed and they never touched me for it. The seventh I let live and they hooked me for a killing I never even done at all. Now the one thing I haven't mentioned about the story so far is that it goes into a lot of detail about the murder plan. First there's the detail about the phony phone booth where Fade tells Brains, step in like you was going to call up somebody and shove hard against the back wall of the booth. Brains did so and nearly fell out into the open on his ear. The wall was hinged like a door. He took a quick look around him, saw that he was at the back of a dimly lighted garage. The nearest light bulb was yards away. The outside of the door was whitewashed to blend with the plaster of the walls. The battered hulk of an old car, with the wheels removed, was standing in such a way that it formed a screen for the peculiar exit. Brains got back in again. The door swung to after him. He stepped out of the booth. Fade closed it and hung the sign back in place. I own the garage, he mentioned, but just the same, don't let the guy out there see you come through. He ain't hep to it. Neither is the bartender on this side. The booth's a dummy I had built for myself. Can it open from the outside for you to get back again? Brains wanted to know. No, leave a little wedge of cardboard under it on your way out like a shoehorn, Fade told him, but not wide enough for any light to shine through. So all of this becomes part of the suspense of the story. Brains, when he goes out, has to avoid the mechanic in the garage, and he has to avoid him on the way back as well. And the entrance to Hitch's room is not so easy as just climbing through the window as Sam does in Goldie's room. He has this whole elaborate plan involving a 2 by 4 that he has left on the roof of the adjacent building. He has to avoid all the people that live in that building. He has to get to the roof He has to swing the two-by-four from the roof down to Hitch's window and then climb across that two-by-four to get into the apartment. All of this increases the suspense considerably. Or as Jack Seabrook puts it in his review of the episode, when Sam escapes through the phone booth and goes to Goldie's room, the entire episode of him crawling across a plank between two buildings to gain access is eliminated, which is too bad, since it is a suspenseful part of the story and one that the reader can easily imagine. Jack goes on to say that Change of Murder was also adapted as a half-hour live TV broadcast on May 21, 1950, as part of the Colgate Theater series. Newspaper listings report that the cast included Bernard Nadell, Charles Jordan, Alfred Hobson, and Martin Kingsley. This show is almost certainly lost. And he adds that Francis Nevins points out that this was one of the author's earliest crime stories that the characters in Change of Murder are reminiscent of those that Damon Runyon wrote about, and that the ending, where Brains is accused of a murder he did not commit after having gotten away with real murders, recalls the end of James M. Cain's The Postman Always Rings Twice, where Frank is convicted of murdering Cora, whom he did not kill, although he had gotten away with killing her husband Nick. And yes, I noticed that too. You can't help but remember Postman when you read this story or watch this episode.
1: Wonder why you remember that, Al.
0: Well, I'm sorry, Sam, but I don't know how you can avoid it. Postman came out in 1934. Change of Murder was published in 1936. I think it's pretty clearly an influence on Woolrich's story. Much more original is Woolrich's later story, It Had to Be Murder, a title he changed two years after its publication to Rear Window. In his introduction to Rear Window and Four Short Novels, Francis Nevins says... Much of this story's fame, of course, is due to Hitchcock's classic movie, starring James Stewart as Jeffries, Grace Kelly as his girlfriend Lisa, Thelma Ritter as the friendly Snoopy visiting nurse Stella, Wendell Corey as Lieutenant Doyle, and Raymond Burr as the murderer Thorwald. Hitchcock and screenwriter John Michael Hayes expanded the Woolrich story into a two-hour film by integrating into the movie's structure a host of major and minor characters and an abundance of themes that are absent from Woolrich's tale— or at most hinted at. The Hitchcock device of limiting our viewpoint to what the immobilized Jeffries can see from the rear window of his apartment comes more or less directly from Woolrich. But Jeffries, as Woolrich drew him, is a man alone, with no one to talk to day in and day out except the kindly black house man, Sam. By adding the Grace Kelly and Thelma Ritter characters and building up Wendell Corey's role as James Stewart's detective friend, Hitchcock opened the door to all the elements that set the movie apart. Here's how Hitchcock put it in his conversations with François Truffaut. The, it's a short
2: story. The um, story
0: in French.
2: It was uh, quite the a Pierre short court. story. It dealt with a man in a room. He was incapacitated. C'était... I think he had a man Invalide. who looked after him, but wasn't C'est with him, he him he all he the be time.
7: Be. But he was not and
2: uh, it dealt with the bare facts of what he saw
7: through the window fact, uh, and the droite. threat of the man coming around. I think, uh,
2: I think the final touch in the short story was the Je man
7: shot at him le, la chute, uh, du, but du he was able to take
2: down a bust of Beethoven,
7: de Beethoven Et le tenir. In
0: silhouette,
7: and the en silhouette. shot it Et le,
0: la, a, big, a, a <laughs> And here's screenwriter John Michael Hayes.
4: I went back to my house in Encino and wrote a treatment. With, uh, I had given him some inkling of the ideas I had, but he was so busy with Dial-M, he didn't, hadn't worked it out yet. I uh, hadn't worked out uh, Rear Window yet and I wrote a treatment, about 35 pages, double-spaced, I think, and I brought it to him and he liked it very much. And he sent it to Paramount, who had said, if he could get a good screenplay out of Rear Window, they'd make a commitment to the project. Well, they committed on the treatment. And he sent it to Jimmy Stewart, who committed on the treatment. So Hitch said, "We'll go back home and write the first draft of the screenplay. Now, he made some suggestions on the treatment, I can't recall them all, but I went home and I wrote the whole first treatment by myself. Now uh, we didn't have a lot of action, I mean, after all a man's in a cast sitting in his wheelchair looking out the window, but you just couldn't keep him looking at the killer all the time with his binoculars and expect the film to develop, to, to go this way or that way. So we use the people in the apartments for relief.
0: How's your wife?
4: Oh, she's fine. And then we'd come back to the story for action. And uh, it stretched out the film. And it gave it several aspects that were interesting. Now, a couple of the stories in the apartments had effect on our story, the story with the dog and one thing and another. So, They were created because you just could not sustain our story without going to other things and you couldn't just black out all the apartments around you're naturally attracted to movement here or color there or uh, a puppy barking or something so we we blended it all together and i might say that was a great part of hitch's contribution the development of those sidebar stories.
0: Let's get back to Francis Nevin's introduction to Rear Window and Four Short Novels. Woolrich never tells us what Jeffries does for a living, but Hitchcock makes him a professional photographer, a man whose job involves a sort of spying on people. So it's completely in character for him to while away the long, hot days and nights of his immobility by peering into his neighbors' lives through his telephoto lens. We, the viewers, are forced to see all that Jeffrey sees and nothing else. And Hitchcock thereby tells us in effect that just as his likable protagonist is also a sick voyeur, so are all of us. There are hints of this motif in Woolrich's story, but Hitchcock transformed the voyeurism theme into one of the central elements in the film. because
7: he's a character who is simply curious. Finalement, he is immoral. But he's rather immoral. And you condemn him to some degree in the picture.
2: Well, he was a peeping
7: Tom. But c'est voyeur. ça, c'est un voyeur.
2: Well, there was a complaint about that. I think that,
7: uh, that
2: uh, Legione on the London Observer made some comment sur, uh,
7: Observer, uh, to the fact that it non, a, a Rear operation? Window
2: was a, a horrible
7: film, a film, because, a, because it
2: was a man was peeping Parce all
7: the time. I constantly. don't think
2: you have to say it's horrible, you know, then, um, horrible. Uh, they were anti-American anyway
7: anti-American mm. But um
2: But sure, he was a peeping
7: Tom. Oui,
0: Aren't we all? Francis Nevins goes on to say, Another central motif of the movie likewise stems from the barest hint in the story. As presented by Woolrich, most of Jeffrey's spying is concentrated on Thorwald, and the other neighbors, into whose lives he peers, are given only a few poignant paragraphs. Hitchcock creates more neighbors and makes each of them Miss Lonely Hearts, Miss Torso, the composer, the honeymooners, the middle-aged man and woman with the dog, vivid characters in their own right. But the crucial point is that each of these people, or couples, represents Jeffrey's vision of one of his own possible futures if he makes a permanent commitment to Lisa. This motif has no counterpart at all in Woolrich. Rear Window is a first-rate movie in which Hitchcock kept the basic Woolrich plot, the did he or didn't he oscillations, and the hair-raising suspense climax, but grafted onto the structure all sorts of complex nuances of theme and character and mood that turned the picture into something quite different from the Woolrich version. What there
7: is, I think, that in working the scenario, you became gradually assez ambitious, very ambitious, and gradually the yard it became somewhat an image of the world, plus or moins consciemment. You had every. Was it more or less conscious? You had every
2: type of
7: uh, behavior. Genre de humaine, you conduite.
2: had little stories going in each one.
7: You had to do that. Chose. It Il would have been very ça. dull ça if they'd merely been
2: people. Si des gens. You know, oui. uh, each had to have a story. Because that was you were showing, you were you c'est were
7: c'est reflecting a, a, a little world, as fait, you say. You're but everything is on love at the same time. is the problem of Stuart is il n'a pas envie Grace Kelly. he doesn't feel like marrying Grace Kelly. Right. Elle veut she, se faire she wants to get married. Right. Sur le mur d'en face, and hmm. on the wall cross. On voit toute l'histoire you du couple. The whole story of the couple. Mm-hmm. La femme seule qui n'a pas de, d'amant ni mari. Then you see the woman alone who has no lover and no husband. Right. Les jeunes mariés qui font l'amour toute la journée. The newlyweds who make love all day long. Yes. Le musicien qui est tout seul. The musician yeah. who's alone. Et un couple marié depuis longtemps. And a couple that have been married for a long time. Et la femme qui est insupportable et dont le mari veut se débarrasser. And the woman who's unbearable and whose husband wants to get rid of her and they are in the inverse situation from stewart because maladie. it's a woman who's who's invalidated by her sickness right. et le, et qui est libre de and the man who is free of his movement of his, yes, his motions yes, mm-hmm. c'est très it's ça. very satisfying oh, yes,
0: this is echoed by donald spoto in the art of alfred hitchcock where he says lisa and jeffries could easily become the other neighbors Either of them, facing the future alone, could become Miss Lonely Hearts or the frustrated drinking composer. They could as well be the sexually hyperactive young married couple in whom, oddly, Jeffries is not much interested. This young couple, sequestered during the entire story behind closed bedroom blinds, are frequently shown for a brief moment at their window, quickly undercut with shots of Lisa and Jeffries necking. And finally, Lisa could become the eccentric, slightly deaf sculptress or Lisa and Jeffries together could be the colorless, childless, middle-aged couple showering affection on a small dog. All the neighbors, therefore, represent the possibilities for the future. But with the exception of one slow pan across the apartments, we see them only as Jeffries sees them. He is a man who becomes increasingly the prisoner of his own fantasy life. His view of the outside world depends on the extent to which that fantasy life prevents outside reality from breaking in upon him. All of that may be true, but I think what interested Hitchcock the most was the technical aspects of voyeurism, the camera as voyeur. And he waxes quite eloquent about that in talking to Truffaut.
7: What tempted you at the at the outset was perhaps the challenge. Oh, sure, yeah. The technical, mm. the technical mm. aspect. The
2: Well, well. Well, you had, you had, uh, you had the possibility now for doing a purely cinematic film.
7: F- un film In other words, uh, you had
2: the immobile man
7: seeing
2: one piece of film, he looks,
7: un de film the second piece of film le is what he ce sees, ce
2: and his reaction. Et ses this was the cinematic motif all c'est the way through motif the film.
7: C'est à tout le film.
2: Uh, uh, proving the, the three pieces of film que les
7: trois morceaux de films, uh,
2: represent what we know as the purest expression of cinematic
7: idea. expression de de l'idée uh,
2: Pudovkin, you know, Pudovkin, savez, uh, always uh, wrote about the woman who down at the dead
7: Le bébé mort.
2: And uh, the face never changed. Il
7: ne a jamais.
2: Compassion.
7: Mais l'on sentait la compassion.
2: Take away the baby shot.
7: Vous le, la And vue put, du put, bébé. A,
2: put a plate of food.
7: Une, um, and there hunger. Et on lisait la nourriture.
2: Uh, just, just in the same way that we take a close up of Stuart, He looks
7: Stuart, out of the window. we uh,
2: We'll say, for example, he pas, sees exemple. a woman holding a femme. baby. And you cut back
7: to Stuart. de he Stuart, smiles.
2: Take away your middle piece of film. You
7: he, que he looks.
2: Some other piece of film. Il voit he smiles. Notre film. Il now
7: sourire.
2: Let us put in a middle piece of film. But,
7: but non, dans a girl in the, the nude. He's
2: now a dirty old
0: man. a mm-hmm. Or, as Truffaut quotes Hitchcock in his Hitchcock-Truffaut book, nothing could have prevented my making that picture because my love for cinema is stronger than any morality. In The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock, Donald Spoto quotes Grace Kelly. All through the making of Dial M for Murder, she said, the only reason he could remain calm was because he was already preparing his next picture, Rear Window. He sat and talked to me about it all the time even before we had discussed my being in it. He was very enthusiastic as he described all the details of a fabulous set while we were waiting for the camera to be pushed around. He talked to me about the people who would be seen in other apartments opposite the rear window and their little stories and how they would emerge as characters and what would be revealed. I could see him thinking all the time and when he had a moment alone, he would go off and discuss the building of the fantastic set. That was really his delight. Spoto goes on to say that there had been no mention of Grace Kelly acting in the new Hitchcock picture, and she had not been offered a script to read. She was surprised, therefore, back in New York in October of 1953, when she received a call from her agent with the news that Hitchcock expected her for wardrobe fittings for Rear Window. At the same time, she was offered the role eventually played by Eva Marie Saint in Ilya Kazan's On the Waterfront. That picture, which was to be made in New York, suited her plans better than the necessity of returning to Los Angeles. Forced to make a swift decision within an afternoon, however, she decided to go back to Hitchcock after she read the new script. Here's John Michael Hayes on Grace Kelly. When I
4: spent a week and a half or so with Grace Kelly, I discovered that she was full of good humor. She was bright. She was snappy. She had all the characteristics of uh, being able to to uh, be an actress. But in Dial M for Murder, I thought she was rather stiff and cool, but she was new to the business. And she acted like a... Uh, a student or so, learning her craft. And uh, Hitch alluded to that. He said, she's stiff, and uh, we have to... Uh, uh, you have to open her up somehow. He said, I don't know how you're gonna do it. But if you create a character, it's got to have life to it. So I gave her a lot of sprightly life and enjoyed doing it. And and she enjoyed playing. I saw her naturally uninhibited at home. And I gave her the kind of dialogue and things that I hoped would make it easy for her to let this uh, creative energy out. Grace Kelly's performance in Rear Window was a reflection of two things, one of her natural, temperaments and her natural style and uh, what I borrowed from my wife on whom I based the Grace Kelly character. My wife had been a professional model and I knew the world and the jargon and everything else and uh, then I added my own humor. As a matter of fact there were some things in the film that my wife on seeing the uh,
0: preview would turn to me and say now where do you suppose that came from? Hayes and Hitchcock apparently worked very well together, but Hitch was jealous of any success that Hayes would get. Here's Hayes quoted in The Dark Side of Genius. The Mystery Writers of America gave me the Edgar Award for Best Mystery Writing for that film, and I thought Hitch would be delighted, but he didn't come for the ceremony, and when I brought the little ceramic statuette into his office, he pushed it back to me and said, you know, they make toilet bowls from the same material. I felt that he resented my receiving an award when he didn't. A few weeks later, I wrote a piece for the New York Times. I'm working with Hitch. It was quite benevolent and praised his films. But he called me in and said, as he tore up the article, young man, you are hired to write for me and Paramount, not for the New York Times. And here's an anecdote from Grace Kelly. At the rehearsal for the scene in Rear Window, in which I wore a sheer nightgown, Hitchcock called for Edith Head. He came over to her and said, look, the bosom is not right. We're going to have to put something in there. He was very sweet about it. He didn't want to upset me, so he spoke quietly to Edith. And then everything had to stop. The assistant director was going crazy, trying to keep everything under control. We went into my dressing room, and Edith said, Mr. Hitchcock is worried because there's a false pleat here. He wants me to put in falsies. Well, I said, you can't put falsies in this. It's going to show, and I'm not going to wear them. And she said, what are we going to do? So we quickly took it up here, made some adjustments there, and I just did what I could and stood as straight as possible, without falsies. When I walked out onto the set, Hitchcock looked at me and at Edith and said, See what a difference they make? Peter Aykroyd, in his book Alfred Hitchcock, says that Jimmy Stewart vowed never to work with Hitchcock again after his frustrating and demanding performance in Rope. But Donald Spoto in Spellbound by Beauty adds, Despite his unpleasant recollections, James Stewart quickly signed on for Rear Window after reading the script and learning the identity of his co-star. He had new toupees created and called in expert cosmetologists, the better to deflect recognition that he was 21 years older than the leading lady. The filming, all in all, seems to have been quite harmonious. Peter Aykroyd says, Hitchcock himself thoroughly enjoyed the direction, re-experiencing the energy and enthusiasm that he had felt on earlier films. About this time, he said... I felt that my batteries were really fully charged. James Stewart confirmed this mood of optimism. He recalled that the set and every part of the film were so well designed, and he felt so comfortable with everyone associated with it that we all felt confident about its success. The director was only occasionally discontented. Every once in a while after shooting a scene, Stewart recalled, Hitch would get out of his chair and come up to me. Then he would very quietly say, Jim, the scene is tired. He would then go back to his chair and sit down, and you would know exactly what he meant, that the timing and the pace were wrong. Part of the reason for Hitchcock's excitement goes back to the quote we had with his conversation with Truffaut, in which he talked about Pudovkin and the manipulation of film to use the same reaction to get a different result. But also, according to Peter Ackroyd, much of Rear Window had to be silent in the sense that Jeff cannot hear what is being said in the opposite apartments. He must rely on the gestures and expressions alone. And in the process, Hitchcock revived his technique from the silent films of his early career. It has been estimated that 35% of the film is silent. He was returning to the era of what he once called pure cinema. And Aykroyd goes on to say, it was essentially a film about voyeurism with the prolonged satisfaction of exposing or discovering what is usually secret and hidden. It is easy to recall here Hitchcock's own love of sexual gossip and innuendo. It could even be said that in fashioning Jeff, he had created an image of himself, the man hiding behind the camera who creates a fantasy world out of observable reality, and who engages more fully with the women in front of his lens than with the women in his life. At certain moments, Jeff is described as abnormal, with a problem that he can't discuss, and too frightful to utter. This may be an allusion to repressed homosexuality, as some have suggested, but it may just be a piece of teasing by Hitchcock and Hayes. In the same spirit of teasing, Raymond Burr, who plays the part of the suspected murderer, is made up and coached to resemble David Selznick, Hitchcock's old boss. One last anecdote from Donald Spoto's Spellbound by Beauty. This from Georgine Darcy, who played Miss Torso. Hitchcock asked her what kind of pie she liked. Apple pie, she replied, and maybe cherry pie. But I hate pumpkin pie, Mr. Hitchcock. Ugh. The next day, he shot the scene in which a neighbor's dog is found strangled. I want you to look over there and throw up, Hitchcock said. I didn't need to throw up, but that was the look he wanted from me. So he brought in a pumpkin pie, and he did the scene several times. Her filmed reaction close-up is more dismay than disgust. Perhaps, as she remembered, because her director served the hated pumpkin pie with a dollop of crude cockney jokes. Rear Window is one of the films that Donald Spoto calls Hitchcock's self-understanding, in which the camera, like in Psycho, is a major character. In Spellbound by Beauty, Spoto writes, From rope through vertigo, Jimmy Stewart had become a kind of surrogate representative of Hitchcock. Admired and celebrated as one of America's exponents of the ordinary man as hero, Stewart became, in a way, what Hitchcock considered himself to be, a theorist of murder in Rope a chair-bound voyeur drawn to and fearful of love in Rear Window, a protective but manipulative husband and father in The Man Who Knew Too Much, and the passionately haunted pursuer of an impossible duplicitous ideal in Vertigo. These four roles provided the actor with the most substantial opportunities of his career, and Hitchcock with an alter ego acceptable enough to engage the audience's sympathies. Of course, none of this was deliberate on Hitchcock's part. The works would not have their own energetic lives and inner logic if they were schematic movie memoirs. But seen after the fact, the elusive autobiographical elements provide another window through which their richness may be appreciated. And as always, the artist could not leave himself outside the studio doors. The images and stories came from him or were at every turn shaped or approved by him. Given his control and approval, his rejection of this suggestion, or his acceptance of that one, given his attention to every detail of music and sound effect, wardrobe and camera placement, the pictures were him, and they could be no other. All of this comes together in what is arguably Hitchcock's best film. Its effectiveness can be encapsulated in this quote, again from the Hitchcock-Truffaut book, in which Hitchcock says, As a matter of fact, I happen to be sitting next to Joseph Cotton's wife at the premiere of Rear Window. And during the scene where Grace Kelly is going through the killer's room and he appears in the hall, she was so upset that she turned to her husband and whispered, Do something! Do something! And the whole concept of someone suspecting a neighbor of murder is powerful enough that Hitchcock returns to it in Mr. Blanchard's Secret, episode 13 of season 2 of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The film was a hit, and Hitchcock was nominated for a Best Director Oscar, his fourth of five nominations. But he lost again, this time to Ilya Kazan for On the Waterfront, the film, as you'll recall, that Grace Kelly turned down in order to film Rear Window. Now, I'd like to wrap up our discussion of Rear Window with three clips from the film that may sometimes get lost in the drama of the film.
3: New York State sentence for a peeping Tom is six months in the workhouse. Oh, uh, hello, sir. They got no windows in the workhouse.
5: You
6: know, in the old days, they used to put your eyes out with a red-hot poker. Any of those bikini bombshells you're always watching worth a red-hot poker? Oh, dear. We become a race of peeping Toms. What people ought to do is get outside their own house and look in for a change.
4: You know, much as I hate to give Thomas J. Doyle, too much credit, he might have gotten a hold of something when he said that was pretty private stuff going on out there. I wonder if it's ethical to watch a man with binoculars and a long focus lens. Do you, do you suppose it's ethical even if you prove that he didn't commit a crime?
6: I'm not much on rear window ethics.
4: Of course, they can do the same thing to me, watch me like a bug under a glass if they want to.
6: Jeff, you know, if someone came in here, they wouldn't believe with it, see? What? You and me with long faces, plunged into despair because we find out a man didn't kill his wife. We're two of the most frightening ghouls I've ever known. You'd think we could be a little bit happy that the poor woman is alive and well. Whatever happened to that old saying, love thy neighbor."
0: it seems to me, if I can remember back that far, that we were actually talking about the episode The Big Switch. So what does the title mean? Well, Jack Seabrook says, a police lieutenant named Al pays Sam a visit. The two have known each other since childhood, and Al recalls how a teacher once took a switch to Sam. Sam asks Al if he'd like to do the same, and Al replies that the only switch big enough for you now is the one that throws the juice to the chair. This explains the episode's title, The Big Switch, though it could also refer to the switch of places Sam later makes by means of the trick phone booth. All of that is probably true, but I also think that just like the title change of murder, it refers to a switch of victims, from the intended victim, Goldie, to the unintended victim, Barney, the one that will unintentionally send Sam to the chair. And while it's got some serious moments, and the twist works beautifully, It's mostly murder for laughs, and I prefer the Woolridge short story.
5: Say, I thought you were smart,
1: Al.
0: Oh, great. Now I've got Edward G. Robinson from Bullets or Ballots on my case, paying me back for my negative review. It's not that negative, guys. Oh, I wouldn't pay you back
2: that way, Al.
0: Okay, bogey, okay. It's just my opinion. Can you guys all back off now? It's time for Hitch anyway.
2: Well, as they say in San Quentin, that's the way the little pellet drops. Now, if only Don Levy had killed Goldie, he could have accounted for his actions at the time of Barney's accidental death. But then suppose the police started asking questions about Goldie. And now for some of those delightful words from our sponsor, after which I'll be back.
0: Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, Pat and Mike, The Man with the Golden Arm, The Honeymooners, The Twilight Zone, Season 3, The Front Page, 42nd Street, Some Like It Hot, The Adventures of Superman, The Complete Third and Fourth Seasons, Mystery Science Theater 3000, Collection No. 23, Rear Window, The Dark Side of Genius by Donald Spoto, Spellbound by Beauty by Donald Spoto, and Alfred Hitchcock by Peter Aykroyd are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Glennis theme music, The Pharaoh's Curse movie trailer, The Bullets or Ballots movie trailer, the Big Valley episode, Mother McCree, Just a Song at Twilight, and the Hitchcock-Truffaut discussions are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this episode, please email me at scherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject heading. Next time, episode 16, you Got to Have Luck, starring John Cassavetes and Marissa Pavan.
1: So long, Al.
0: So long, Sam. It was a pleasure working with you.
2: I'm afraid that's all the commercial we have time for this evening, but we shall be back next week with some more. And, uh, oh, incidentally, uh, if there's time, we also uh, plan to tell you another story.